Today's scripture comes from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be, was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring him word that bring me words so that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to the to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with his with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Then Jeremiah 29, 13. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Last week I preached on the promised king. That throughout all of the Old Testament, there was this promise that there would be a king who would reign on the throne of David forever. Truly is the unanswered prayer request of all of humanity who cries out in the night, save us, is answered in Jesus Christ. John the Baptist, his father, Zechariah the priest, when he gives his song of praise, mentions three covenants that God had made with the people of Israel. The Abrahamic, the Davidic, and then also the New Covenant. In Matthew chapter 2, we find a group of non-Jews who have traveled a vast distance to find this babe who's promised to be born King of the Jews. The search for a king is a powerful theme in history and in fiction. In history, there are tales of men who go to war with one another in hopes of being crowned the king. Herod the Great, the one we read, read about in the Christmas story, he, was not, he did not conquer Israel. No, he was installed as their king by the Roman government. Um, he was given the title by the Roman government. In the Bible, in the fir- for the first and second kings of Israel, they were, not crowd- they were not born to be kings, but they were selected from among the people by God himself. In the nation the wise men come from, They had no king at the time of Jesus Christ. These magi, these wise men, were actually instrumental in finding a king for the Persian government, for the Persian kingdom, and crowning him king of kings and lord of lords. Probably in fiction, there is no more enduring tale than that of a boy named that was called Wart, who is secretly the son of a king. 
He was, his great hope and desire was to maybe be a stable boy. Then in the town that he was living is this stone with a sword in it. And little does he know his true name is Arthur Pendragon. And he goes up to the stone and he pulls the sword and he is now king of the Britons. During the events of the birth of Christ, there is a group of men looking for a king. The Magi who we just wrote, read about. Their major role in their government was to be king makers, to anoint kings. They were known as the Magi and their story begins possibly even at the time of Abraham when he was in the Ur of the Chaldees. Last week I mentioned that there's this enduring theme in the Bible. It's really an enduring theme of all of human history is that we look for a king. The problem is that we don't want Jesus to be that king. Many think that they are their own king. Little do they know they've only crowned sin as their king. Many look to elected officials to save them and to rule them. Worse yet, we look to actors to tell us how to think and how to feel. Everyone is searching for a king. But unless that king is Jesus Christ, then we only find a false king and a tyrant. Our scripture today is about these men from the east called Magi. We have the Christmas hymn, We Three Kings of Orient Are. The only problem is, there's probably more than three. They were not even kings. We have the song, We Three Kings, in church history. We've even given them names. Caspar, Melchor, and Belshazzar. However, the Bible does not say that they are kings. The Bible does not say that there are three. In fact, there was probably quite a few more than kings. But we three kings really rolls off the tongue better than we, th- we indeterminate number of wise people skilled in different arts and sciences of our homeland and are also religious But they did get right. I mean, they are from the Orient, from east of Israel. So that's good. That doesn't roll off the tongue as well as we three kings of Orient are. At least the song gets their location correct, east. So they are foreigners in a foreign land. They are non-Jews. The Bible does give us some information about who they are. They were part of a tribe in Persia who were priests of their religion. Aaron, the brother of Moses, Him and his whole family line are priests in Israel. John the Baptist, his father and mother were from the priestly line. These magi, they were from a priestly line as well. In the religion of their people. They are mentioned in the Bible before this also, specifically in the book of Daniel. Magi in the Greek is where we get the English word for magic. Unfortunately, that really misses the whole picture of who they were. In the time of the Bible, religion and science were connected. You were not just religious or scientific, you were both. People of learning or wisdom were also very religious. Daniel is a key part in this. Daniel being very religious to his God, but he was also grew in wisdom. People knew him to be somebody who knew the right way to go. The Magi were educated, the educated men of their day. Daniel, in Daniel 5.11, was known as their leader. Daniel 5.11. This is a man of your kingdom in whom the spirit of the holy gods in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom were like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, 
Your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. They had a very specific role in the Persian government, too. They were the kingmakers. A king was not a king unless they were anointed by these magi. Daniel, once again, going back to Daniel, they didn't really understand Daniel. They thought maybe he has the spirit of all of our gods. No, he had the spirit of one God, and that's where they attacked him at. Because they knew that he was so devoted to his God, he would resist any other king, any other person, to serve his God and his God alone. As part of their official record, they had Daniel's writings as being their former leader. The other pro- they also had the other prophets during and right before the exile. So they knew something about this one who would be born king of the Jews. They will be the first Gentiles to fulfill God's promise to Abraham that all nations would be blessed through him. Before the Jewish people were taken away to the home of the Magi in the exile, they were given a promise by God. In this promise, they were told that God would gather them back. This promise is found in Jeremiah twenty nine thirteen, which I read to you earlier. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your hearts. So these magi, these wise men, this promise wasn't spoken to them, but they believed it for them. The Bible's filled with all of these promises, and some of them are spoken directly to certain people, but the heart, the God behind all promises stay the same. So they, from faith, in their foreign land, believed if he's king of the Jews, he could be our king, and that was their desire. We will have him to be our king, and we will journey to the west, and we will find him. Before the Jewish people were taken, to, taken away, they had their prophecies. And these wise men in Persia, in, these magi, had this passion, this desire, this obsession to find this king. The promise was conditional, but they believed that this promise could apply to them as well. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. These wise men, after, after, uh, these wise men sought after this king. They found him because they sought him with all of their hearts, specifically with all of their time, with all of their treasure, and with all of their life. Today, our children's Christmas program, and I didn't really realize this before I made this message, was footsteps to the manger. You know, it's so easy to get caught up in all of the things around Christmas and to forget the true meaning for for the season. I was speaking with another pastor friend. We were talking about all these churches closed on Christmas Day because it's Christmas, even though it's the Lord's Day. And I remember the first time somebody asked me about that because every now and again, Christmas Day is on Christmas. And people will say, hey, is your church having Christmas? And my my knee-jerk response is, yeah, of course, we're not pagans. We don't stop the Lord's Day for some celebration, even if the celebration is, of course, if the celebration is connected to our Lord and Savior, It's so easy to get caught up in all these things to lose sight of what truly are all of our hearts, all of the reason why we are even born is for, and that is to know him and make him known. They sought him with all of their time. There is a saying that love is spelled T-I-M-E. Time is the most precious of resources. Once it is spent, it cannot be refunded. Those of you with small kids, I know it's a difficult time for you. My brother and his wife just had a newborn, and they have those late, late nights. She has colic and everything. But let me tell you one thing. Those of you who have these small kids, this time never comes back again. You spend all this time working, you don't get to have that time back. 
You'll have time with your adult kids for a long, long time, maybe longer than you were wanting to, but you will not get that time back. Time is the most precious of commodities. So the things and the people we spend time on are, show our love and devotion towards them. Your time, um, I, I often use this exercise when I'm speaking with uh, crowds and we are talking about priorities. And I'll have people write down the number of hours in a week. And then I'll have them subtract eight hours of every day for sleeping, assuming you get eight hours of sleep, which you probably don't, but let's say you do. And then I, then I ask you to write down the different activities in your week and, and assign to them the number of hours you spend on those activities. And once you've tallied all of that up, I, I then ask you to list your top three. And then after you've done all of that, I, say, I tell you this, behold your gods. Because this is what you spend your time on. This is what you spend your life on. Tim, Pastor Tim Keller has goes straight to the point. He says, when nothing else is occupying your time, what do you think about? Because that is your God. What do you spend your time dwelling on? These wise men, the Magi, they come from Persia, which is modern-day Iran. They traveled on foot, possibly with donkeys and uh, camels. In fact, once again, we think of three of them because we think of the three presents. Chances are it was many, many more because they would need all of their supplies. They would need all of their servants and all of this. It's more like, instead of just seeing three guys on camels like you see in my picture here, it's more like that scene in Aladdin when Aladdin comes into Agrabah. Prince Ali, Ali is he. It's like a procession because these people, this is a huge deal. They're coming to find a king. And not only just necessity would dictate that they would need lots of people with them, it also would, tradition would dictate that this is time for a celebration to find this king as well. The time they spend, it is at least 700 miles, if not at the most 1,200 miles. It would have taken at least their entire journey 70 days, if not a considerable amount more. What passion, what devotion, what love drives someone to do such a thing? To be a foreigner in a foreign land, in a hostile land. Their nation went to war with Rome three times before this. And here they are. We're we're strolling through your place. We want to know where your king's going to be born. To be a foreigner in a foreign land, I know people who will not make such a journey in a plane for a loved one, let alone on foot. So what do you spend your time on? They come to Jerusalem and they start asking uh, around, and this disturbs the people there. They are not disturbed because they don't believe, but because they do believe that this promised king is coming. And for them, the journey was far less, but not a single person comes with the Magi over to Bethlehem. They tell the Magi, they tell the wise men, he must be born in Bethlehem because that is where the Savior will be born. Here's the thing about the wise men. Even though they had their ways, they saw his star. By the way, I just want to clear something up here. They weren't simply using astrology or astronomy or anything like that. They saw something unique in the heavens. It was his star. They had names for every other star. Some people are like, oh, they saw Jupiter. They had a name for Jupiter, but they don't say it's Jupiter. They say it's his star. We have seen his star. There's something supernatural happening in the Christmas story. 
We have seen his star. They spend all this time there, all, you know, once again, at least 70 days. Can you imagine telling your wife, telling your husband, hey, I'm going to be gone for 70 days. What? What are you doing? Oh, it's, it's kind of a work trip. Really? I talked to your boss. He said, uh, no, it's not. Well, it is because we're going to go find, we're going to go find the king. Oh, you mean our king? No, no, not our king. But yes, our king. Kind of our king, but not our king. Have you been reading Daniel again? I told you. <laughs> it, just, it just gets you into trouble. You remember he went into the lion's den. Yeah. We are going to go find this king. Because even though he's king of the Jew, we want him to be our king. To be king of our hearts. What do you spend your time on? They tell them that their king, the true king, the promised king has been born. They are disturbed because they, not because they don't believe him, but because they do believe them. And they tell these magi where to look, but no one makes the journey with them. When the magi meet Mary and Joseph, there is no mention of any religious leader, high priest, or any priest coming with them. So what do you spend your time on? What are you seeking? Who are you seeking? If you have the king in your heart, are you obsessed with still knowing him? Or has the love grown cold and you wouldn't cross the street to know him better, let alone 700 miles on foot? Are you investing your time on things that matter? Heavenly things, kingdom things, things that in 10,000 years will matter. That's a unique way of seeing things, right? Teenagers, some of you guys are in sports. I know Niall, Niall is in uh, wrestling. Man, you can become the next Hulk Hogan. I know it's not that kind of wrestling, but whatever. <laughs> in 10,000 years, people won't know who you are. But if you give a glass of water to somebody in need, 10,000 years in the king's kingdom, that'll be known. What are you spending your time on? They also spent not just their time, but their treasure. When does a hobby, when does an interest become an obsession? I think when you spend an extreme amount of time and an outrageous amount of money on something, all of a sudden a hobby becomes an obsession. Like hunting, for instance. Maybe I shouldn't go there, but whatever. Hunting. You know, nothing wrong with getting your hunting license and, you know, getting your doe or buck every season and getting your gun out. But there are some people who call themselves, like, deer season widows because they don't see their husband from whatever time to whatever time. And you have uh, people who spend $10,000 on hunting trips, which I find to be amazing. What are you hunting? Like a buffalo? Or, I mean, like a, I don't know, a dragon? I mean, what, $10,000? Um... But it's not just that. There are people who take, who take simple interests, golfing, basketball, football, whatever, and they go to such extreme lengths. But nobody goes to the lengths that the Magi go to. Three, possibly three months, and an outrageous amount of finances were spent on this trip. Let's just talk about the expenses of the trip at first, before we even get to the gifts. The expenses of this trip. Before we go into the actual gifts, have you thought about the extreme cost of this trip? How much would you have to save to take a summer off, like completely off? You're not a teacher, so you don't get paid over the summer. You have to save enough money just to maintain your lifestyle over the summer. Now imagine you are traveling a huge distance over the entire summer. 
supplies to withstand all those long desert miles, protection from bandits. Then there is all the attendance you have to pay to haul all your things around. This was important to them, and they would see it done. Their treasure revealed their hearts. Matthew 6.21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is true whether we want it to be or not. They did not see their treasure as a means and an end, but only as a tool that helped them to get close to Christ. Is that what you see your finances as? A tool to help you get close to Christ. I can tell you something that's obvious from these verses. They did not get this money back. There's a lot of people in scripture, they don't get the hundredfold blessing at the end of the week. I remember serving in this much bigger church and the pastor told the congregation, give $100 on Sunday and by Friday, God will give you $1,000. So this guy gives $100 on Sunday. He comes in on Friday. He says, I haven't gotten $1,000. I'd like my $100 back. And the, uh, and the uh, secretary said, uh, no, of course not, leave. He pulls out a gun and she says, here's your $100 back, sir. They didn't get this money back, but they didn't care either. Because they got a blessing worth a billionfold, a trillionfold. They got to see their king. They got to see the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Promises that were not spoken to their forebears, but were for them. They sought him with their time, but they sought him with their treasure as well. Because they did not see all of these things, although they are important. Some people say, oh, money isn't important, it's just money. Yeah, right. You kind of need it to live. You need it to have a roof over your head. You need food in your stomach. You need to buy clothes and things like that. It's important, but it's not important next to knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Once they get there, then they have three kingly expensive gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Weird gifts to give a newborn, right? But they weren't giving gifts for just a baby, but gifts for a king. They, they had told the people in Israel, where is he to be born king of the Jews? Charles Spurgeon, when preaching, on, when preaching and using that great hymn from Charles Wesley, Come Thou Long Expected Savior, made the point, most people are born princes, they're not born kings. But Christ is born king. He is king of the Jews. They come and they give these gifts to anoint a king, that was their primary role in Persia of old. Each gift, extremely expensive, that they paid for, and nobody else paid except for them. Their gifts were not given to get anything in return, other than to be part of what God was doing. What they got was the greater blessing, however, because it is more blessed to give than to receive. Their giving came from joyful hearts. And that is the same for us. Sometimes, yep, sometimes we give and God blesses us financially. Thank you, Jesus. Absolutely. Sometimes that doesn't happen. There's a time in mine and Becca's life where we weren't doing great financially. In fact, I was literally selling my blood to buy groceries. And God put it on our heart to give towards missions. We didn't go, we didn't go into debt to do this. We didn't, um, we didn't uh, not fulfill commitments that we had already made. But we purposely saved money in order to give to missions. And we gave to missions, and nothing happened financially. We struggled for another six months. 
But the blessing we receive from being faithful and giving, there's no words for that. There's, there's no way of convincing you if you don't already know. You know, if we televise this, nobody's signing over their checks to give to the church because I'm promising a blessing that I can't even describe to you, and it's not financial. They gave sacrificially. They gave because they wanted to be part of what God was doing. They gave because their passion and their heart was that he would be their king. The Bible does not tell us of any other significance to these three gifts. However, tradition um, has it that there's a deep meaning to each one of these three. Let's start with gold. Gold throughout the Old Testament is a symbol of divinity. It is mentioned throughout the Bible. Pagan idols were often made of gold. The Ark of the Covenant, which was a symbol of the presence of God, was overlaid with gold. The gift of gold to the Christ child was symbolic of his divinity. He is God in the flesh. Frankincense. Or if you read that wrong, you might be thinking one of the wise men brought, you know, bolts in the neck and all that. It's a white resin or gum. It is obtained from a tree by making incisions in the bark and allowing the gum to flow out. It is highly fragrant when burned and was therefore used in worship where it was burned as a pleasant offering to God. Frankincense is a symbol of holiness and righteousness. The gift of frankincense to the Christ child was symbolic of his willingness to become a sacrifice, wholly giving himself up like a burnt offering. Myrrh was also a product of Arabia and is obtained from a tree in the same manner as frankincense. It was a spice and was used for embalming. It was also sometimes mingled with wine to form an article of drink. This was the wine that they offered to Jesus Christ on the cross. So at his birth, he is offered myrrh. And at his death, he is also offered myrrh. Myrrh symbolizes the bitterness and the suffering and affliction. The baby Jesus would grow to suffer greatly as a man and would pay the ultimate price when he gave his life on the cross for all who would believe in him. They give their time, they give their treasure, and they are willing to give their lives. Jiminy Cricket sang a song, When You Wish Upon a Star. The Magi, they didn't wish upon the star. They wagered on a star. And their wager was their lives. They were willing to live and to die to see this king. They wagered that their lives, that they would see the king of kings and the Lord of lords. They had, an, they had anointed false kings and princes, but now they would worship the true king if the star that led them was true. These magi, they would anoint a king and the king would take the title king of kings. Nebuchadnezzar, that was his official title, king of kings, but now they would anoint the one who on his thighs and on his robes would say king of kings and lord of lords in the book of Revelation. Let's talk about the trip. When you're traveling, you probably don't think of the dangers of traveling unless you're going to Fort Dodge, am I right? (laughs) Nice little in-joke. People are watching online, you have no idea what I'm talking about, and that's cool. Um, You don't think much about the dangers of traveling, of bandits, of marauders. In the times before Christ, it was much more dangerous. It was a little safer, but not much safer. 
That's why we think probably there was a lot more than three because they would need guards. Three affluent, rich men traveling, traveling a long journey. Man, that is, you might as well just take the money and give it to the bandits yourself. Remember when Jesus gives this parable about the Good Samaritan? Everybody listening to that parable, they got it. Because they know what it's like to travel on the road alone, looking around the corner to make sure there's not a bandit. In this story that Jesus gave, this guy is making a small journey, just town to town, not nation to nation. And bandits set upon him, they beat him, they strip him, and they throw him in the ditch. That could have happened to them. That's why we think that they brought bodyguards with them. But even if it's not that, even if there was no danger of this, there is an incredible danger and risk into traveling during that period of time. Disease, starvation, dehydration. Think about this nation when it was being settled. You read stories about these kids talking about going through two mommies on the way to Oregon. Or if you played the Oregon Trail, how many times did you lose because everybody got dysentery, right? Same risk. Actually, much, much worse. It's safe to stay home. It's safe to stay where you are comfortable. But when you know that there is a king out there waiting to be crowned, you take the risk. They knew, but they still went. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. King Herod. King Herod of the time of Jesus Christ, he was titled King of the Jews. He was a clear and present danger to them. He was an evil little man. He loved his power and would do anything to keep it. Most are obsessed with power, but he took it to a whole new level. If you read further in Matthew, when he finds out that the wise men did not come back like he asked them to, he becomes furious and has all the boys under two put to the sword. Here's something you may not know. Herod had an infant son. And by the, the Roman historian, Maccabeus, he said, he quoted um, Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus is the emperor ruler of Rome at this time. When he heard about what Herod had done, he said, it is better to be Herod's pig than his son. The Magi are told in a dream not to go back the same way. This pretender king will not take it well. And when he finds out, who knows what he is capable of doing. So their time, their treasure, their safety, and here's the fourth thing that signifies to us that they sought him with their lives. They worshipped him. They worshipped him. We read that before. When they, found, when they found Mary and Joseph and the child, not at the manger. I know that's a really sweet scene with the nativity, but they weren't there. When they're at the house, they come and they fall down and worship him. Some people try to make the claim that Jesus is never presented as God in the Gospels. Yes, he is. He receives worship. He receives worship when he's a toddler. He receives worship when he's a man. And he receives worship in the book of Revelation because he's king of kings and lord of lords. I know there's a very popular show, and I'm not really disparaging it because there's some good things in it. But there's a part in the TV series, The Chosen, which somebody bows down and Jesus tells her, don't. That's ridiculous. And that might even be just enough to make it just steer away from the series completely. 
he accepts worship because he is God. People try to stone him for this very reason. They, so they, they give their time, they give their treasure, they give their safety, and they give their worship to this newborn king. Jesus said that if we are to, if we are to follow him, we must take up our cross and follow him. Worship is living sacrifice. Many talk about dying for Christ, but if you're not living for him, I question your sincerity. In a short while, our, wor- our youth worship team here are going to lead us in a final song. But as, they, as you, can come, you can come up now, as I'm talking here, we'll light the Advent candle and then you guys will go into the song. How do you seek the king at Christmas? Let's look at the wise men. They read and believed God's word. When they didn't know where to go, they went to Jerusalem because they knew that's where God's word was. The people there, they studied God's word and they would know. So they read and believed God's word. They sought Jesus Christ. They recognized the worth of Christ. They humbled themselves to worship him. They obeyed God, not men. So during this Christmas time, it's next week, you need to be asking yourself, have I let my love for Christ grow cold? Am I still in the passionate pursuit of his presence? Maybe you don't know the Lord, and as I've been preaching, and as I've been preaching, you have this desire. Maybe you did something religious in your past. Maybe you even got up at an altar call. You said the prayer. But as I've been preaching, the Holy Spirit's been revealing to you, no, you haven't sought him with all of your hearts. You have no affection for Jesus Christ. Sometimes in our passion to see a lot of people inside, um, go, uh, in the seats, we make it seem like it's just something we sign on the data line. Now we're in the club. No, do you love him? Do you have an affection for him? Are you seeking him? Did you saw, were you seeking him like these wise men are and were? Seek Christ. And if you know him today, don't lose the passion for knowing him. Because it is daily we pick up our cross to follow him. Josh and Jess, yeah, I picked the exact wrong time here. Oh, here we go. All right. I didn't see you. They're going to be lighting our final Advent candle. And then our youth are going to be leading us in our final two Christmas hymns. Following that, we have a reception downstairs. Would love for you to stay. Board members, I'll see you in the fireside room immediately following the service. Thank you. Today we light the last purple candle. This candle is the angel candle, or the candle of peace. This candle reminds us of the peace Jesus gave to us. We also light the other two purple candles, candles that remind us that Jesus brought hope and love to the world. We light the pink candle to remind us of the joy Jesus brings. As we light the candles of peace, we remember the angels and how long they waited to be able to tell the world the good news of Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought about the angels in this story? Have you ever thought about how excited they must have been to tell the shepherds the great news of that news that the Savior had been born? Think about the angels for a minute. They probably knew about God's plan to send Jesus to the world to save it. They had to wait a long time, thousands and thousands of years, before they could announce God's plan. Throughout the Old Testament, there are angels who appeared to prophets to deliver God's messages to them. 
but they had to wait until the world was ready for the best message. Then one day, God said, it is time. Go shout, from the, go shout for joy and sing hallelujah, because the Christ is born this day. And off they went, appearing to shepherds to tell them how God had just changed the world. We can see the joy of the angels in the narrative as they gather to praise. One aspect of Christmas people love is singing Christmas carols. What is your favorite Christmas song? The angels sang the first Christmas carol when they said, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. During this week of Advent, we were reminded of the good news that brings great joy that is for all people.